Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Ellenson, the uh, Chancellor Emeritus of HUC, uh, the profound scholar and prolific author, and someone that so many of us, uh, myself certainly included, admire very deeply. So thank you for taking time to talk. It's my pleasure to be here with you. I also want to uh, take the opportunity to uh, to share the exciting news that, um, along with Professor Michael uh, Marmer, um, the book coming out this June, American Jewish Thought Since 1934, will be released. Um, profiling, what is it, 80 different? 80 different American Jewish thinkers. It'll, yeah. It will transform the intellectual life of American uh, Jewry, not to mention <laughs> its religious commitments. Amazing, uh, amazing. Brandeis Press. So Brandeis Press, <clears throat> very exciting. Um, and we just—I was just a part of a session for over uh, over an hour, looking at uh, looking at the the, the names and, and issues involved. Incredibly broad. So I, I, I want to look back at your experience growing up. Um, as a as a Jew growing up in the South, and how did your family get to Newport News, Virginia? And <laughs> what were issues of race that you saw or grappled with as oh, a child? Boy. What was it like growing up as a Jew, and not only a Jew in an Orthodox home in the South? So there are a lot of questions there. My uh, paternal grandparents uh, came over from uh, Lithuania at the very beginning of the 20th century, probably about 1910 or 11, and ended up in Newport News, Virginia. I am not quite sure precisely how that happened. Family legend has it that my grandfather landed in Baltimore with two brothers. One brother went to Buffalo, one brother stayed in um, Baltimore, and another, meaning my grandfather, came to Newport News. He'd been a tinsmith in Russia. And um, he knew there was a large shipyard in Newport News, so he came down there uh, and ultimately started a roofing business, uh, sheet metal works. Um, the interesting part is that um, there must have been about 70 to 100 Eastern European Jewish families who ended up in the peninsula in Virginia. Newport News probably had about 20, 25,000 people then. And one of the interesting elements of the world uh, that they entered at that point was there was no reform congregation there. In general, the pattern in American Jewish history in the South is that uh, German immigrants settled and they created reform congregations. Here you had about 70 <clears throat> Eastern European Jewish families and they created an Orthodox uh, shul. My father had graduated from college at... Uh, William and Mary uh, in the early 40s. And after World War II, he went up to Cambridge, Mass., where he went to Harvard Law School. And he met my mother there uh, at a Friday night uh, Hillel service. An interesting story about the Southern dimension of this was that my bubby, my grandmother in Boston, 
would not uh, initially permit the engagement, uh, saying that she had never heard of a Jew from Virginia, <laughs> and that uh, until he met my father's mother, he what she wasn't going to allow the engagement. My mother at the time said, well, how could he not be Jewish? I met him at Hillel. He speaks Yiddish. His name is Sam. He knows how to daven, et cetera. How could he possibly not be Jewish? And my Bubby Stern, my mother's mother, said, doesn't mean anything, according to family legend. Um, the boys at Harvard are very smart. He may just want a Jewish girl. Until I meet his mother, there's no... Uh, there's no engagement, and at that point, it took 18 hours on the train to go from the peninsula in Tadwater, Virginia, up to Boston. My grandmother, uh, Ellenson, Bubby Ellenson, disembarked. My other grandmother takes a look at her and says to my mother, is this Sam's mother? And said, well, must be Sam's mother. Uh, they're kissing, they're speaking Yiddish, they're hugging. And then my Bubby Stern said, okay, the wedding's on. Uh, <laughs> so we came back. I was actually born in Brooklyn during my dad's mm -hmm. last year at Harvard Law, so I was six months old when I came back to Newport News. My brother and sister, though, were born there. Uh, by the time I grew up, the peninsula in Virginia, meaning Newport News and Hampton, uh, probably had an overarching population of about 200,000. And there were probably about six to 700 Jewish families. Yeah. Uh, there were four synagogues. Uh, one was Orthodox with a Mechitza. One was Orthodox with a YU rabbi. But at that point, uh, they had mixed seating. Mm -hmm. Then there was a conservative shul, Rod of Sholem, and then there was a Reform temple. Though the Reform temple, I don't think, began till I was nine or ten mm -hmm. years old. So my life was mainly centered around the shul I grew up in, which was the Orthodox shul with the Mechitza. Most of our rabbis were from Yeshiva University, but some came from Nereus Royal in, um, in Baltimore. Uh, Probably a major turning point when I was about to enter the seventh grade, my um, father wanted to send me up to the Talmudic Academy in Baltimore. And my mother had no religious objection to it, but she just did not want me to uh, leave home at that point. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to TA for uh. high school, I remember Rabbi uh, Bullman coming over and trying to persuade my father and mother to send me to uh, TA, and my mother just said no, not because she objected to yeah. the orthodox yeah. part, she just wanted me at home till I finished high school. Yeah. Who knows, I might be living on the West Bank in <laughs> Yehuda V'Shomron today, right. but uh, the show was a major, major uh, part of my life, but having said that, all the Jews in the community knew one another. My mother was uh, very active in the Federation world. She was a uh, vice president of Adassa, uh, uh, active in the National Council mm -hmm. for Jewish Women. I mean, another anecdote, I'm a little embarrassed to tell this anecdote. Uh, when I first came to Virginia, my mother tells the story. She was a 22-year-old, as she put it, girl coming from Boston. <clears throat> and my grandmother, Bubby Ellenson, shows up at the house with an African-American woman and my uh, grandmother says to my mother, uh, Rutsi, Roz, uh, in Yiddish, uh, this is Ora. Uh, 
she's going to be working for you. And my mother said, what do you mean she's going to be working for me? Well, she's going to cook the meals every night for Sam and you. She's going to take care of David. Uh, and my mother said, well, what am I supposed to do? Uh, and she said, well, on Monday, the girls go to the Ladies Auxiliary at the Shul. On Tuesday, you go to the National Council for Jewish Women. On Wednesday, you have Hadassah. There was a whole Southern Jewish life that clearly was quite rich, but it was also a way that I was introduced into race so that I had an African-American woman who really mm -hmm. took care of me uh, along with my mother from the time that I was uh, little. Segregation was just a way of life. We were all aware that... <clears throat> there were large numbers of African Americans, but the world I lived in at that point, um, except for the shul, which was an integral part of my life. I mean, I would go there virtually every single day to study Hebrew uh, after school. But in addition, uh, I'd be there every Shabbos, Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday. We had additional education. So there would be five days a week for about two hours a day we'd be studying Hebrew, the primary focus of the education was on uh, tefillot. I call it uh, Jewish civic education. The idea was how would you be, uh, become a competent Jew who could participate in the life of the shul. My father was a president of the shul. Um, so I learned how to, uh, I learned all kinds of nusach from the time I was little. And to this day, I probably could recite virtually any non-high holiday prayer uh, in the traditional Ashkenazic rite mm -hmm. uh, with appropriate nusach, and maybe a lot of even the high holiday nusach. Uh, it was just an integral part of who I was. My name's Miros. I'd get up and leave that at the end of services. So that it was a very intensely Jewish world. Israel was at the very center. My parents were extremely, extremely strong Zionist. Uh, I was born on November 21st, 1947, and my mother used to always say, you entered the covenant of the Jewish people with your bris on Kavtet uh, November, uh, which was, of course, the day that the uh, state of Israel was, uh, or the partition plan, was voted uh, into uh, by the United Nations. So. There was this very active Jewish life. On the other hand, we were always aware of there being non-Jews, aware. The whole world was non-Jewish. My family participated in the civic life of Newport News. One of my uncles, there were five Ellenson brothers and sisters. We all lived on the same street for a long time, Oak Avenue. Um, One uncle was director of public works for the city of Newport News. For a Jew to have a public position was very unusual in those days. Mm -hmm. And my father and uncle were uh, both attorneys. Another brother uh, took over my grandfather's uh, roofing business. Uh, I was a page boy in the Virginia State Senate in 1962. And again in uh, 1964, I was a page to the Democratic delegation at the... Uh, Democratic National Convention. Uh, so there was this bifurcated world. On the other hand, the world was completely segregated. I have vivid memories of there being uh, colored and white signs. Mm -hmm. One funny story, when I was six or seven, uh, I went with a friend of mine uh, to the public library in Newport News. We were brought by his older sister. And for whatever reason, African-Americans and 
whites could enter the um, the public library. It wasn't segregated in that way, but there were separate water fountains mm -hmm. for blacks and whites. They called them colored in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll never forget my friend David Rosenwasser goes over to the water fountain uh, and he was maybe six or seven, and he starts to drink some water, and he turned to his sister and said, I don't understand. And my friend's sister said, what do you mean you don't understand? He said, well, the water doesn't look colored to me. Uh, <laughs> but it just says what the nature of the world was that we, uh, that we lived in. And when I was a boy, 11, 12, 13, I have vivid, vivid memories of students from Hampton Institute, now Hampton University, fighting for desegregation of uh, public facilities in Newport News. Uh, at one point, the stores tried to handle the segregation or desegregation, integration, by just removing all the seats in places like Grants and Woolworths. But that solution didn't seem to uh, work very well because then nobody could sit. African Americans or whites. Uh, but I was very, very mindful. Jews were part of the white community. And on a personal level, I felt like I was really part of Virginia. And on the other hand, as a Jew, I knew that part of me never was. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of um, the social justice commitments that I've had in my entire life uh, emerged from that period mm -hmm. and the uh, unfairness. One last story I tell. I remember <coughs> once my father took me to a uh, segregationist rally. This was at a time in Virginia where you may or may not be aware there was a period where several counties, including Prince Edward in Virginia, closed their public schools rather than allow integration. This was several years after Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. Virginia was maybe the only place in the English-speaking world that had the ignominious distinction of having no public school system in some of its counties. That was how much people fought to retain segregation. My father said, I want you to come with me. And we drove, it was about two hours, out into the country. And my father's only comment was when we got there, he said, I want you to see what evil is. And I listened, and we went home, and he didn't say another word, but it left a tremendous... Mm -hmm impress upon me listening to these white supremacist wow. uh, speeches. Wow, wow. So, so it sounds like those years were incredibly formative of your Jewish identity, of your social justice commitments, of just your sense of your own American identity, um, and uh, your own ethical sensibilities. Um, yeah, the interesting part yeah. is being there, on one level, you know, I've always thought Northern Jews have images of there being Ku Klux Klaners mm -hmm, and... Mm -hmm in their uh, regalia discriminating against yeah, us. But that yeah. wasn't the case. Yeah. But on the other hand, there was always a sense, from my point of mm -hmm. view, of dis-ease. Now, mm -hmm. having said that, many of my friends were non-Jewish. Uh, I was president of the student body at Newport News High School, which yeah. was overwhelming. I mean, overwhelmingly, 98% non-Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always felt I was different. The idea that the Jewish people were in ambodade, that we mm -hmm. were alone or segregated uh, from the rest of the world, was really an integral part of who I was mm -hmm. as a Jew. And at the same time, I had a tremendous commitment 
to Klal Yisrael. I was also very active in both NCSY, uh, the National Conference mm -hmm. of Synagogue Youth, and AZA, which is Alotzadik Aleph, which was today part of BBYO, the B'nai B'rith mm -hmm. Youth Organization. We had one rabbi at the shul who was not happy about my joining AZA, that uh, he was much more of a uh, separationist. Mm -hmm. He thought NCSY should be enough. And my parents absolutely uh, opposed that kind of position. I mean, was always part of the larger Jewish community. And in fact, it was also a world where every Jew I knew belonged to one or two synagogues uh, where you gave a contribution every year to the United Jewish Appeal. In my home, there was an incredibly strong sense of not only commitment to traditional Judaism, but as I said before, to the state of Israel and to Jewish peoplehood, Klal Yisrael. They were integral parts of how I grew up. So how, 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 did, um, uh, how did you get to a place where such a bulk of your scholarship on modern Jewish thought was about Orthodox thinkers? I mean, obviously you had that Orthodox upbringing, but what, what was it that sparked that interesting commitment for you? Well, People like great, Hildesheimer. Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, part of it was that I did grow up in a very orthodox background. I used to study text with our rabbis quite often. Uh, I went to college at William & Mary, which is not a major center of producing, uh, you know, lots of thinkers in, uh, in Jewish thought, though perhaps more than you might think. Uh, John Stewart went to William & Mary. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. He once gave me a copy of a book, my daughter Ruthie, knew someone who worked for him, and he sent me a copy of a book he had written called, I think, America. It's sort of a parody of an eighth-grade uh, middle school civics book, and he signed it to me. I still have it. It was to Rabbi Ellenson. If there had been eight more of us at William and Mary, we would have made a minion. It <laughs> wasn't quite true. And then I, my senior year in college, I got very interested uh, in one course I took. It was a course taught by a man named James Livingston, who was an expert on Protestant and Christian thought. And I took a course in contemporary Christian thought. Uh, and I read Kierkegaard, we read Nietzsche, we read Tillich, Desjardins, and we did read Buber. He was the one Jew in the class. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found it the most compelling thing I'd ever read. Kierkegaard's diaries overwhelmed me. Uh, I hadn't yet really read people like Rabbi Soloveitchik or Rabbi Heschel. And I thought, well, this is something I want to know more about. Though the year I graduated college in 69, I joined uh, like a state teacher corps in Newport News. Uh, State of Virginia created a program where uh, students who were college graduates but without preparation and education would teach uh, in predominantly African-American schools. So I taught special education for a time in uh, Dunbar Elementary School, which had maybe 1,500 African-American students. Uh, and it was during that period, though, that I decided, rather than become an attorney like my father or uncle, that I just wanted to know more about what religion would say. Um, so I ended up going to the University of Virginia, which had just created a master's program in religion. Ironically, Dr. Livingston said, have you thought about becoming a rabbi? Well, the only rabbis I really was close to were these Orthodox rabbis, and I said, no, no, I'd never become a rabbi. Um, so I went to UVA and... Um, 
I had a professor, David Little, who taught sociology of religion, which had a tremendous impact on me. Suddenly I was being introduced to people like Durkheim, Weber, and mm-hmm. Marx, and I began to think about, well, how does religion develop and mm-hmm. change? And uh, I had a professor, Rabbi Alan Latovsky, who was, he changed my whole life. He was the first Jew I met who was a graduate of JTS, who was religiously committed, but also very, very much part of the larger world, and he and his wife, Jean, embraced me, and uh, ultimately, after a year in Israel, I decided to go to uh, rabbinical school, so I went to, decided to go to HUC, principally because I wasn't halachic anymore, and in those days, that was about the only choice left, though the irony is I knew nothing almost about the reform movement Mm -hmm. when I entered, Uh, and while I was at HUC, I went to Columbia, so I was interested in the Mm -hmm. question of how does traditional religion respond to change, and I think in my head, and I still do, I have conversations with many of my uh, orthodox teachers, Mm -hmm. rabbis from the time I was a boy, and I came to focus on Rabbi Hildesheimer, who was the uh, head of the Orthodox Seminary in Berlin, really one of the first Orthodox rabbis in the modern world to also receive a PhD from a German university. In fact, he received his doctorate at Halle, the city where uh, there was the terrible anti-Semitic attack uh, mm. this past year oh, in Kippur. Really? Oh, yeah. So he received a doctorate on the Septuagint mm. in the mm. 1840s mm. in Halle. Um, And I was in the library at Columbia in the reading room, and ironically, I mean, I discovered, I was reading a rabbinic thesis from an HUC student named Jonathan Brown, who had written a work on uh, Rabbi W.C. Hoffman, Mm -hmm. who later became head of the Hildesheimer Seminary. I had never heard of Hildesheimer, but I saw, here you have an Orthodox rabbi who wrote lots of Chuvot, wrote lots of articles. Uh, So I was interested in the question of how does a traditional religion respond to change? And that is really what led me to write about orthodoxy. Uh, I also love the Hebrew language and I love rabbinic texts. A story that I've told on other occasions, when I was a little boy, maybe seven or eight, uh, I was studying the Amidah, the Shemona Esrei, and the first bracha, the Avot, and... uh, as you know, it says, Elokei Abraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I was maybe seven, and I asked our teacher, Rabbi Bowman, I said, well, why weren't, and I could not have used the term chazal at that point, but it, yeah. I asked, why, why isn't this line consistent? And the rabbi said, what do you mean? And I'm sure I didn't use the word like consistent then either. But uh, the rabbi said, what are you asking? I said, well, they use Abraham's second name instead of Avram. Mm -hmm. They say Avraham. And if they use Avraham, why don't they say instead of Yaakov, Yisrael? Mm -hmm. Like, why not either use both first names or both second names? And I'll never forget Rabbi Bowman came over and he gave me a kiss. and from that day on, I loved studying yeah. Jewish texts. The answer he gave was, was that Avram wasn't Jewish. Mm. And when he became Jewish, after his circumcision, he became Avraham. And, but Yaakov was born a Jew. Who knows? Yeah. There are probably a thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. midrashim on that. But those, I, those formative moments are so powerful. But I remember the yeah, story yeah. very yeah. vividly. So <clears throat> for me, what's interesting, and I like responsive yeah. literature the best, because yeah. they represent for me a crossroads 
where past and present meet in the ongoing history mm-hmm. of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have the past, you have principles, rules, text from the Jewish past, and the question is, how do you apply it today? What should Jews think about immigration policy? Mm-hmm. What does our tradition tell yeah. us about this? Yeah. And then a rabbi has to make a decision at a particular moment. I conceptualize Judaism uh, as an ongoing uh, serial novel where you're the heirs to what's been written before, but on the other hand, you have a responsibility to write whatever the current chapter is as you try to lead people both in the present Mm -hmm. and towards the future. And so I've always liked studying particularly the German rabbis because... These were rabbis who participated fully in the modern Western world. They received PhDs from German universities. They had secular educations. But they were completely committed to a thick, traditional Jewish culture. So the questions of how would they respond to pluralism, how did they respond to how do you educate people appropriately, uh, how do you respond to these kinds of issues in the modern world, that's what really... Uh, compels me as I engage in my studies Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I didn't mention him but the other professor who had a tremendous impact on me was Yaakov Katz, Jacob Katz Mm -hmm. of Hebrew University. Mm -hmm. He was a visiting professor at Columbia and... uh, You know Shabbos Goy? Yes, yes and Tradition and uh, oh yeah, tradition and modernity or something. Tradition yeah. and culture tradition and cul- out of the ghetto. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. I've read a few and and so yes. he became right. my teacher. I even translated an article of his while I was his graduate student. Kavim uh, lebiografio lidmuto shelachatam sofer notes towards a biography of the chatam sofer. It was published later in English. So Professor Katz demonstrated to me how responsive texts were ideal for studying the ongoing Mm. story of the Mm. Jewish people. And so for me, these texts are part of that uh, story. So so, uh, it's so fascinating. Um, One last question for you, I think. Does the Reform Movement have a theology? So like when you've looked at orthodoxy, orthodoxy, I mean, it's not so difficult to iron out what, I mean, orthodoxy is a lot of diversity, but theology is relatively clear and the boundaries are pretty well policed. And I wonder, like, is there a coherent theology within the reform movement? And um, and I guess maybe a, a connected question. Uh, I know it was long debated, should the reform movement embrace some kind of halachic discourse, even if it's going to be a, pro- a progressive, you know, right, kind of re- right. but the, in this notion of a responsa, this notion of actually doing that intellectual work to connect past and future, would, would you be a proponent for sort of a reform revival of such So I would yeah. say, I mean, you're quite correct, Ref- Orthodox Judaism does not have the problem with authority that Reform Judaism has. In other words, Orthodox Judaism, and I don't need to tell you, however you define it, however broadly, and there are radically different ways Orthodox Jewish thinkers characterize this, does affirm a notion of Torah mina shemaim. There is a sense in which the Torah, meaning written and oral law, Torah shebichtel v'gam, Torah shebalpeh, are holy. In other words, mm-hmm. if I use philosophical language, yeah. the epistemological authority mm-hmm. of the tradition is clear. Yeah. What happens if you don't accept that epistemological mm-hmm. authority and don't have this view of revelation? And that's really the question. So the reality is Reform Judaism does believe, and here I'll quote Mordechai Kaplan, yeah. but other thinkers have done this as well, yeah. 
that Judaism really is an evolving civilization. Judaism is not only in history, but it's of history. And the idea that you have a contentful revelation at Sinai uh, is problematic. In other words, most reform rabbis affirm a version of the thought, I think, either of Martin Buber or Rosenzweig, that you have, in quotes, a contentless revelation where God and Israel meet at Sinai, but uh, the covenant is forged through the meeting itself, not through the mitzvot mm -hmm. that are given. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, yeah. every Orthodox rabbi study yeah. finds that mm -hmm. proposition um, heretical. I mean, mm -hmm. I could use other terms. Mm -hmm. Wrong would be another way to put mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But what happens if that's where you stand? So the question comes to be then, how is it that I view the response or how does the reform move? Meaning there is a God, there is revelation, and that's an ongoing revelation. But it's an ongoing um, By the not, way, as a result... Not a commanding one, necessarily. But not necessarily a commanding one. That's why mm -hmm. when I read people like Brad Artson or Tamar Ross mm -hmm. even, with her mm -hmm. notion of cumulative yeah. revelation... Yeah. She probably wouldn't agree with my depiction of her mm -hmm. views, but <clears throat> I understand that a bit better. What I see the halakhic tradition as being is it's an integral part of our tradition. There are problems with it. It's written yeah. principally by men. I mean, I don't even mm -hmm. need to go through mm -hmm. all the critiques. A lot of the morality I applaud, and some of it, mamse root, I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. I find mm -hmm. problematic the whole Secondary status, in my opinion, that women are accorded in halakha represents tremendously problematic parts of the tradition for me. I understand that in a patriarchal culture these things emerge, but it doesn't command me in any way. In that sense, I am reformed. There's no question about it. But Jews have a right to be part of an ongoing conversation. Consequently, and this is somewhat ironic, there's actually a lot of halakhic literature written by uh, Reformed Jews from the very beginning of the Reform movement with the Hamburg Temple through people like Moshe Zimmer, Walter Jacob, Mark Wachowski, Rachel Adler today. You have Reformed Jews writing responsive. The CCAR has a responsive committee because what you're doing here again is to engage with the tradition. Now the problem is what is the epistemological and authoritative status of that tradition? Uh, and that is somewhat problematic. So the way I put this is that orthodoxy does not have a problem with authority. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I can affirm the foundational belief that, they, that the orthodox have that legitimates that mm -hmm. authority. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what reform does that is true to me is it talks about the ongoing evolutionary historical nature of the Jewish people that leads yeah. to a great degree of pluralism, but authority does remain a problem within mm -hmm. reform. In other words, mm -hmm. even when responsa are written, it's hard to know what, what they mean in an authoritative sense, though to be part of the Jewish conversation, mm -hmm. I think it's integral that uh, these sources uh, be heeded. Okay, so, so unity would be difficult both uh, normatively and theologically, essentially. Yes, in the reform right, movement. Right. See, reform is good on pluralism. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to know where the boundaries... Yeah. Right. It's hard to know what the... I must have something going yeah. on there. Uh, it's hard to know theologically, philosophically, what the grounds yeah. can be 
for boundaries within reform. Yeah. In other words, reform is good for me because I think it's correct. If I didn't yeah. think it was true, right. I wouldn't right. have gone to right. Hebrew Union College. Right. But I do recognize there is a problem yeah. with authority and orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. For all the pluralism, look, a lot of my mm -hmm. work does demonstrate that there are pluralistic views. Tonight I'm giving a talk yeah. for you. Yeah. And I'm going to show on issues like conversion, there are multiple paths that an Orthodox rabbi could adopt in relationship yeah. to Piskei Din, to rulings on conversion. Mm -hmm. But what they do agree is that uh, the sources to which you would look yeah. Yeah. have to be these halakhic mm -hmm. sources, mm -hmm. however creatively mm -hmm. you might right. interpret them. And the rulings that you're giving, even when they represent chidushim, novel interpretations, are still seen as being implicit in the original revelation given by God to Moses mm -hmm. at Sinai. Mm -hmm. And I would not assert that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, I've got a hundred more things to add, uh, ask you, but we're out of time. So please, friends, make sure to, to check out the, the books, uh, especially American Jewish Thought since 1934, coming out this year, uh, and wonderful scholarship by Rabbi David Ellenson. Thank you so much. Thank you.